You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is In the Stream of Time, Episode 6, with Walter Feit. Today's lecture is about the coming kingdom, and it's a little bit deceptive because the coming kingdom is not about the coming kingdom of Christ, but a kingdom that will be set up or attempted to be set up before Christ comes. So, what is this kingdom about? Well, if we look at the context of the series which we're doing, which is the great controversy between good and evil on this planet, and how deceptively the devil has managed to hide his identity even within the so-called organizations that tend to follow him. Now, we're talking about organizations and we're not talking about individuals because deception is of such a nature that individuals are affected without them knowing it. And so this is information to help people to understand why the Lord Jesus said when asked what are the signs of his coming and of the end of the age, he said as the first thing, be careful that no one deceives you. Now, this coming kingdom is the kingdom of the Antichrist. And how will that come into being? Now, in our previous lectures, we looked at the identity of the Antichrist as the Reformers had identified him as the papacy with all the criteria and why they did it. And then we went into greater detail as to how he is setting up his work and his, his organizations in order to cover all the bases on the planet, be it political or ecclesiastical. Now, in the 17th century, Ultramontanism became closely associated with the Jesuits. Now, this word Ultramontanism is an interesting word. Actually, literally, it means Ultramontan, other side, the mountain. And this is a derogatory term that the Protestants used for the papacy. The, the man, other side, the mountain. But it's, it's very clever to take something that is derogatory and turn it into something positive. The man, other side, the mountain. So this is all power today. It means all power embodied in one individual. Within the Roman Catholic Church, Ultramontanism achieved victory over conciliarism at the First Vatican Council with the pronouncement of the papal infallibility. So this is where the Pope can speak ex cathedra on, on matters of religious teaching and dogma and to be guaranteed to be free from error, infallibility. That basically places all the ecclesiastical power in one individual. He is the one that ensures that the church remains free from error. And Protestantism, of course, could not accept that because there's only one head over the church, and that is Christ. And here was another one who could determine doctrine. This is a picture of the Second Vatican Council 
And uh, this is when Pope John XXIII was carried into the council. And when asked to explain his prayer and hopes for the council, he simply went to the window, threw it open, letting a fresh breeze wafting into the room to express his intention in a single gesture. And it is so sad today that the Protestant world believes that this truly was a breath of fresh air. It was the greatest deception ever perpetrated on humanity because Rome never changed one single doctrine. In fact, they expanded the apostasy to include even atheism, agnosticism, in a new category, which we will see. So this was the council that made it possible for the other denominations to be considered separated brethren and to be gathered back into the fold of Roman Catholicism. Supposedly, Rome had a change of heart. Question. Did the Vatican II Council change the Roman Catholic position established at the Council of Trent that led to the separation? Was it still the position of the Church that salvation was to be found only within the Roman Catholic ambit? Well, obviously, if the man in control of that Church is the only one who is infallible and can define dogma infallibly, then that must be be the case? Let's ask them. This is the Congregation for Doctrine of Faith, and this is the very organization that determines the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. So we'll ask them a question. It comes directly from the Vatican webpage. First question Did the Second Vatican Council change the Catholic doctrine on the Church? Response. The Second Vatican Council neither changed nor intended to change this doctrine. Rather, it developed, deepened, and more fully explained it. This is exactly what John XXIII said at the beginning of the Council. Paul VI affirmed and commented the act of promulgation, the Constitution Lumen Gentium. There is no better comment to make than to say that this promulgation really changes nothing of the traditional doctrine. Out of the horse's mouth. Then why does Protestantism believe that Rome has a change of heart? Ignatianspirituality.com This is a modern web page and it talks about Karl Rana SJ, which means Society of Jesus. Karl Rana was of course the prominent theologian that was responsible for the new thinking of Vatican II. One of the most important theologians, so says this webpage, which is a Jesuit webpage, of the 20th century was Karl Rana, one of the most important theologians of the 20th century. And then I talk about how many children he had. He was, a, you know, in 1922, Karl followed his older brother Hugo and ended the Jesuit community. As a Jesuit novice, Rana was formed in the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius Loyola. Now, we need to know what this means. This formation had a lasting influence on his spiritual and intellectual development. Now, this was the main theologian of Vatican II. 
This is Karl Rahner. He says, but I think that the spirituality of Ignatius himself, which one learned through the practice of prayer and religious formation, was more significant to me than all the learned philosophy and theology in and outside the order. So what determined his ecclesiastical stance? His spirituality, his Ignatian spirituality. In his studies, Rana also became thoroughly conversant with the thinking of the fathers of the church, especially on the topics such as grace, sacraments, spirituality, and mysticism. This is from the horse's mouth. So mysticism was part and parcel of the way these architects of Vatican II actually thought. Karana is undoubtedly the most important Roman Catholic theologian in the 20th century. His seminal position amongst his contemporaries results to some extent from his ability to put theology and philosophy in dialogue. Now when that happens, it's a very, very dangerous thing. Because God throughout history has demonstrated how he feels about syncretism. When you mingle philosophies, then you end up where the Israelites ended up when they worshipped God, but in the form of Baal. And you cannot do that. It's syncretism. You either worship God or you worship Baal, but you can't worship one according to the dictates of the other. So this is a serious issue. So Karl Rahner originated a new religious category called anonymous Christianity, saying it embraced Buddhists, various other non-Christians, and even atheists. He says some kind of faith in God is basically there, whether they know it or not. They are a part of Christianity that doesn't call itself Christianity, pagans who have received grace but are not aware of it. So this means that the door is now open to embrace all religions under one roof. But there's only one who's infallible and knows and defines dogma. This is interesting. No other name? Well, this is part, one of uh, Karl Rahner's students, Paul Netter. He served as the wine word, mission, word missionary before assuming a position at Xavier University. He received his doctorate from the Pontifical Gregorian University, the Jesuit University in Rome, and he wrote the book, No Other Name, which became a prescribed book in many theological seminaries in the world. The very name tells you what it's about. Is there any other way that one can be saved other than through Jesus Christ? Well, what if you're a Buddhist? Well, they've just defined that they are anonymous Christians. But Buddhism is basically atheism because there is no personal God. You enter into this pantheistic fusion of a deity, but there's no personal God, there is no Jesus Christ, there's nothing. So he goes and he says, yes, of course there are many paths to heaven. The path doesn't have to go through Jesus Christ. So this is one of the offspins of the theology of Vatican II. 
Now here are some pictures of Paul Nitter with the Buddhist world and those of other religious confessions. And he actually wrote a book which says, Without Buddha, I could not be a Christian. Now this is rather fascinating stuff, you know. And, and the, world, the world believes that these religions like Buddhism, etc., are ancient religions which far predate the Bible and the religions that we have in terms of Christianity based on the Old Testament. But this is far from the truth. If you make a serious study, that you, then you will find that Zoroastrism, one of the precursors of these religions, was actually associated with the time period of the prophet Daniel. And that much of the information was obtained from Daniel and then incorporated and mixed syncretistically with the local religions. And this is where these modern forms of these religions actually came into being. And of course this hope for a Messiah to come was originally proclaimed by the prophet Daniel and taken up into these religions. So the similarities are not that Christianity copied from these religions, but rather the other way around. That's just an interesting fact of history. At the conclusion of Vatican II, Pope Paul VI told the bishops that their church had decided to opt for man. Hmm. To serve man, to help him build his home on this earth. Man with his ideas, his aims, man with his hopes and his fears, man in his difficulties and sufferings, that was the centerpieces of the church's interest, said the pontiff to the bishops. And this comes from Malachi Martin. He should know, being uh, involved with the Jesuits, he should know. And if we go to the Vatican II documents, then it is pretty clear. This is Vatican II, document 64, Gaudium et Spes. The Vatican official foundational starting point is man himself, Rome states. It is man himself who must be saved. It is mankind that must be renewed. It is man, therefore, who is the key to this discussion. Man considered whole and entire with body and soul and heart and conscience, mind and will. This is the reason why the Sacred Synod, in proclaiming the noble destiny of man and affirming an element of the divine in him, this is a serious issue, offers to cooperate unreservedly with mankind in fostering a sense of brotherhood to correspond to this destiny of theirs. This is humanism. This is no longer Christianity. And of course, if you want to avoid conflict, then the centrality of Christ must be removed. And you must introduce a religion of humanity. So, social justice, taking care of the poor, all of these issues which exist everywhere in the world, must become the driving force. But the gospel is the preaching of Christ and salvation in Christ and Him alone. So this is a new gospel based on humanity. Not that I'm saying it is wrong to practice social justice. I'm just saying that this is not preaching the gospel and it must be an outflow of the gospel and not the gospel itself. So the Pope calls for all religions to unite. So in 2013, March 21st, 
Pope Francis said, now it's time. We have progressed so far along the line. All religions unite. Which is what they actually did. A few months later, September 2014, they held this massive meeting in uh, Korea. Religious leaders marching together, celebrating the fact that all the religions are to fuse together as one. We are one. And proceeding from the celebrations in the stadium, they went to the signing ceremony, and there they signed the Unity of Religion Agreement, where all the religions came together and decided to join forces because they all served the same God. The God that you find in the wind and in the rain and in the environment. This is pantheism, a pantheistic God. And it's fascinating to me that it was all the religions. It was Muslim, Jewish, Sikh, Hindu, Buddhism, Zoroastrism, all of these religious movements together with Catholicism and the Anglican Church. Now the argument was, as is apparent from these meetings, that the only way to ensure world peace is for all religions to unite unconditionally. Because what is all the turmoil about in the world? Isn't it religious turmoil? One religion fighting another religion, supposedly. And uh, this is causing conflict and fear. So if they all unite under one deity, then this problem should be solved, and we will have world peace, which is what they were advocating. But Ezekiel 7.25 says, Destructions cometh, and they shall seek peace, and there shall be none. Didn't Jesus say, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And that sword is the sword of the Spirit. And if you clash with the sword of the Spirit, which says there's only one way to be saved, and that is through Jesus Christ, then this system, which the Bible calls Babylon, because it defines its own way of finding God or entering into the portals of heaven, Bab El, gate to heaven. And this is a system of works which excludes Jesus Christ by definition, because these religions don't accept the centrality of Christ. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. So we are living in fascinating times. 1 John 2 verse 23, whoever denies the Son, the same as not the Father. But he that acknowledges the Son has the Father also. The scriptures are very clear and decided that the battle on this playing ground is concerned with Jesus Christ. You either have him or you don't have him. This is the issue. Pope Francis calls for social justice against unemployment. So you're putting the gospel on another track and saying, we're going to go in this direction. We have to preach humanity because we cannot 
in unity with other religions, proclaim Christ as the only way of salvation. Reason alone tells you that that is not possible. Isaiah chapter 66 verse 1 says, And thus says the Lord, The heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me and where is the place of my rest? For all those things has mine hand made and all those things have been, says the Lord. But to this man I will look, even to him that is poor and of contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. Now the papacy consistently uses this terminology. This is their message. We have to take care of the poor and the marginalized. And we have to take care of the poor. What does the Bible mean when it speaks about the poor? Yes, there are materially poor people. And is the Bible only concerned in the salvation of the poor? Or did God take pains in the past to see that he can even convince kings? Yes or no? How much trouble did he go to to convince Nebuchadnezzar? Or Naaman or any one of these individuals to try and convert them? Even the bloodthirsty kings of Assyria were converted. So what does this word poor mean in the Bible? Well, if you look it up in the concordances, it means depressed in mind or circumstances. I don't think there's anybody on this planet who's not depressed in mind and circumstances, at least at times. You can be very rich and be depressed in mind and circumstance. We all have need of something which we cannot fill, and only God can do that. Thus the expressed aim and effort of the United Nations will be eventually brought to fruition and a new church of God, so says the New Age agenda of the United Nations, gathered out of all religions and spiritual groups, which we've just seen, they've actually just done that, will unitedly bring to an end the great heresy of separateness. Love, unity, and the risen Christ will be present, and he will demonstrate to us the perfect life. But this is not Jesus Christ. This is the cosmic Christ that they're waiting for. So separation is heresy. I thought the Bible said, come out and be separate, and be not partakers of their sin. Pope Francis and Peter Faber, kindred Jesuit spirits. Now that's an interesting statement from the National Catholic Reporter. In other words, they are of the same mindset if they are kindred Jesuit spirits. Now who was Peter Faber? Peter Faber was one of the founding fathers of the Jesuit order. There were three that initially founded the order. It was Ignatius Loyola, Francis Xavier, and Peter Faber. And Peter Faber was the German so Peter Faber encountered Ignatius of Loyola and he tutored Ignatius on Aristotelian philosophy. While Ignatius formed Faber's spirituality. So here you have this dichotomy of thought. So what is Jesuitism based upon? It's based on Ignatian spirituality and it's based on Greek philosophy. Those two, neither of which have anything to do with Scripture. Nothing. This is a totally new religion 
dressed up as Christianity. If we go to Abinier's history of the Reformation, talking about Ignatius Loyola, it states in that fantastic book on the Reformation, Inigo, that's Ignatius Loyola, instead of feeling that his remorse was sent to drive him to the foot of the cross, persuaded himself that these inward reproaches proceeded not from God when he felt guilty about sin, but from the devil. Now this is a very dangerous thing to do because the Bible says when you attribute the workings of the Holy Spirit to the devil, that's committing the sin against the Holy Spirit. And he resolved never more to think of his sins, to erase them from his memory and bury them in the eternal oblivion. Luther, on the other hand, he turned to Christ. Loyola fell back upon himself. Visions came ere long to confirm Inigo in the convictions which he had arrived. He did not seek truth in the Holy Scriptures, but imagined in their place immediate communication with the world of spirits. Luther, on taking his doctor's degree, had pledged his oath on the Holy Scripture. Loyola, at his time, bound himself to dreams and visions, and chimerical apparitions became the principle of his life and faith. So Ignatian spirituality is a technique. It's a technique you learn. So you imagine yourself in a situation, it can be a gospel situation, that you are sitting there in the very presence of Christ where he's preaching on, on uh, wherever, when he's preaching the Beatitudes or at the wedding of Cana or any one of those, and you actually start interacting in your imagination using all your senses with the situation. So you must smell and you must touch, and you must hear, and you must have all of the sensations of the senses. And then, eventually, you can actually communicate with these entities, and they can have a direct communication with you, and then you have spiritism. Because it's no longer word-based, but experience-based. And this is the basis of experiential religion. You don't know where it comes from, you receive it, but you don't know that it's necessarily from God. And we spoke about that in the previous lecture. This is a very serious issue. It is the basis for the modern spirituality which we find in the world today. So, Time magazine already said when this man was appointed that he is the new world pope. And uh, one of the Jesuits in 2005 already said, this is Meet the Press, Jesuit priest, Ignatius Press founder, Joseph Fresico, said, those who rebel against the church's authentic teaching are rebelling against God. Because remember, he is infallible. He is infallible. So we have to find out whether this church, in its infallibility, presents doctrines which are not doctrines of God, but doctrines of the serpent. And if this is the case, then every believing Christian who believes that the Scriptures are the Word of God should separate from the system. Come out of her, my people. Now if we go back to Genesis, we'll find the basis, the very foundation of, 
of the serpent's teaching. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 4, the serpent says to Eve, and the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. You won't die. God said the day you eat of it you will die. You will not die. Lie number one. Verse 5, For God does know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as gods. Lie number two, you will be deified. Knowing good and evil. Lie number three. So you don't need God to determine right and wrong. You can do it yourself. Don't let God tell you what you may do and what you may not do. You can decide for yourself. You are an exalted being. You are like God. God wants to keep you in servitude. No, no, no. You will not die. You will be like God and you don't need him to tell you what's right and wrong. Make up your own mind. Munch, munch. See, tastes pretty good. Look at me. I can even speak and I'm just a serpent. So this was the first transcendental medium. Now, fascinatingly, all three of these doctrines you will find in Roman Catholicism, in their official theology. So the very basis of their theology is based on this serpent's advice. Let's have a look at it. This is the New Orleans um, cemetery, Roman Catholic cemetery, and I, I like to show this one because the full catastrophe of their teaching is here on this plaque. Welcome to this holy place. First problem. Is a cemetery a holy place? No. The Catholic cemetery is the last resting place of the bodies of the faithful departed awaiting reunion with their souls at the resurrection of the last day. Blessed by the church and dedicated to God, the Catholic cemetery testifies to a faith in the immortality of the soul and the promise of resurrection with Christ. Here the living find comfort and are consoled by visiting the burial places of their loved ones and praying for them. You cannot have more error on one plaque than you have on this one. None of it is publicate. You cannot pray for the dead. God forbids it in his word because, for obvious reasons, you won't be praying to the dead, but to someone else. And we'll have to see why. This is the Office of the Catechism, Article 1, uh, 366. The Church teaches that every spiritual soul is immortal. It does not perish when it separates from the body at death. This is what most Christian denominations believe and what all other denominations or organizations, Christ, Christian and otherwise, believe. So they claim that man is immortal, but God said you will die. The serpent said you will surely not die. The question I have, is this just ignorance or does Rome know what the scripture teaches? And this is the pivotal point, because if they know, and they do it not, then it is for them sin, so says the scripture. Now this is the New Catholic Encyclopedia, 
and it states that the soul in the Old Testament means not a part of man, but the whole man as a living being. Similarly, in the New Testament, it signifies human life, the life in an individual conscious object. It talks about exegetes have maintained that the New Testament does not teach the immortality of the soul in the Hellenistic sense of a survival of an immortal principle of the death. So they say, Rome says, we know the Bible does not teach immortality. We know that there is no such thing as a separate soul because the Bible teaches that the whole human being is the soul. So this is fascinating. So in spite of the fact that they know, they say, we don't care. The church teaches. So it's an official doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. Pope Leo X, in 1533, when he issued his bull against uh, Martin Luther, Martin Luther had different ideas to the papacy at that stage already, he said, we do condemn and reprobate as all who assert that the intelligent soul is mortal. You may not believe it. You must believe he is immortal because we, the Roman Catholic Church, say so. And Martin Luther, of course, was preaching this new heresy that the soul indeed is mortal. Now this is fascinating because Martin Luther is the one who translated the Bible. And when you translate the Bible, you become involved in terminology and words. And so he, he realized that the scripture doesn't teach what he was taught in Roman Catholicism, and he based his view on the Bible. Dr. Martin Luther posted his thesis on October 31, 1570, and in 1520... He published his defense of 41 of his proclamations and Luther cited the Pope's immortality declaration as among, he always had a good way with words, those monstrous opinions to be found on the Roman dunghill of decretals. Well, Martin Luther didn't mince his words. Archbishop Francis Blackburn states about Luther, Luther espoused the doctrine of the sleep of the soul upon a scripture foundation. And then he made use of it as a confugation of purgatory and saint worship and continued in that belief to the last moment of his life. So Martin Luther believed in soul sleep. He did not believe that the soul goes to heaven or goes to purgatory or any one of those. And he writes himself, we should learn to view our death in the right light so that we need not become alarmed on account of it as unbelief does because in Christ it is indeed not death but a fine, sweet and brief sleep which brings us relief from this veil of tears, from sin and from fear and extremity of real death and from all the misfortunes of this life. And We shall be secure and without care, rest sweetly and gently for a brief moment as on a sofa until the time when he shall awaken us together with all his dear children to his eternal glory and joy. For since we call it a sleep, we know that we shall not remain in it, but again awaken and live, and that the time during which we sleep shall seem no longer than if we had just fallen asleep. Hence we shall censure ourselves 
that we were surprised or alarmed at such a sleep in an hour of death and suddenly come alive out of the grave and from decomposition and entirely well, fresh, with a pure, clear, glorified life, meet our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, in the clouds. He's pretty biblical here. He's quoting scripture upon scripture. Scripture everywhere affords such consolation which speaks of the death of the saints as if they fell asleep and were gathered to their fathers. That is, had overcome death through this faith and comfort in Christ and awaited the resurrection together with the saints who preceded them in death. So this was Martin Luther's view. This was the Reformed view in the beginning because this was what the Scriptures taught. Now the interesting thing is the other man who translated the Scripture and paid with his life for it was William Tyndall. Of course they couldn't burn him alive so they had to strangle him before they burnt him because he was a Catholic priest like Luther was. William Tyndall, British Bible translator, came to the defense of the revived teaching of conditional immortality. This is, as well as other teachings, brought him in direct conflict with the papal champion Thomas More, who strongly objected against Tyndall and Luther. In the words of More, all souls lie and sleep till doomsday. In 1530, Tyndall responded vigorously, saying, And ye... Now he's talking to Thomas Moore, and he's, he's a little bit sarcastic. He's pulling a little bit of an Elijah trick. And ye, in putting them, the departed souls, in heaven and hell and purgatory, destroy the arguments wherewith Christ and Paul prove the resurrection. And again, if the souls be in heaven, tell me why they be not in as good a case as the angels be. They should be quite happy up there. And then what causes there of the resurrection? What's the point? And then he pressed his argument further and he said, Nay, Paul, thou art unlearned. Go to Master Moore and learn a new way. We be not most miserable, though we rise not again, for our souls go to heaven as soon as we be dead and are there in as great joy as Christ that is risen again. And I marvel that Paul had not comforted the Thessalonians with that doctrine, if he had wished it, if he had known about it that the souls of the dead should rise again? If the souls be in heaven, in as great glory as the angels of the your doctrine, then show me what cause should there be of the resurrection. Pretty logical stuff. So this was the Reformed view. Now my question is, why do the churches that base their teachings on Luther and Tyndall no longer believe this? Why have they given up the Reformed biblical view and returned to the Roman Catholic view, which is the language of the serpent, you will surely not die? This is fascinating to me. So the mystic realm of death and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. didn't receive a living soul. So the dust plus the breath makes the living soul. The, what you see in humanity is the living entity. For that which befalleth the sons of man befalleth beasts, even one befalleth them as the one dieth, so the other dieth. Yea, they have all one breath, so that man has no preeminence above a beast. Ecclesiastes 3.19 So when you're dead, you're dead. That's it. 
Now the doctrine of the immortality of the soul that you find in the Bible uh, doesn't support Roman Catholicism at all. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Nefesh, that word, the soul, dies. The human being dies. So God takes the life back, the breath, the metabolism, and what is left is the dust. He doesn't take the living, breathing entity up to heaven with him. He just holds the life. And at the resurrection, he gives the life back. Now, 1 Timothy says, Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. So God is immortal. And he says further in chapter 6, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone, only, has immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. The scripture is crystal clear. Only God has immortality. Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may wake him out of his sleep. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he sleep, he'll do well. Howbeit Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, he's dead. Lazarus is dead. Job tells us that till heavens be no more, they shall not awake nor be raised out of their sleep. The heavens are still here. For in death there is no remembrance of thee, and in the grave who shall give thee thanks? Psalm 6 verse 5. But we always hear that the departed have gone to heaven and are praising the Lord. The Bible says no. The dead praise not the Lord, neither any that go down into silence. Psalm 115 verse 17. So I think this is pretty much right. Rust in peace. This is what happens to this vehicle and it will happen to this vehicle when it goes to sleep. But God can raise it up and give it life again. So that's the one doctrine, just in a nutshell. The reformers believed the biblical view of soul sleep. Their protégés no longer believe it Somebody has gotten hold of their minds, twisted it around, and they've realigned themselves with the doctrines of Rome. Now the second lie was, ye shall be as gods. Exodus 3.14, And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent thee, the self-existent one. Isaiah 46 verse 9 says, God says, I am God and there is none like me. There's only one God who's immortal and everybody else has conditional immortality. And the day you sin, you shall die. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Now let's go to Roman Catholic teaching. The great philosopher René Descartes was a philosopher who wrote on geometry and all of these great things. Of course he was a, doesn't take much to guess what he was, he was a Jesuit. And uh, he entered college when he was very young, studied there, and he 
was studying what? Logic and traditional Aristotelian philosophy. That's what the history books tell us. Now, when you look at the beast out of the sea, which is Roman Catholicism, according to the Reformed theology, its body was leopard, because Greek philosophy forms the basis of its teaching. It's not biblical philosophy. So just like Karl Rahner studied the Greek philosophers, and Peter Faber was an expert in Greek philosophy, so René Descartes was... Aristotelian philosophy. And he's the one who introduced rationalism and he came up with that slogan, I think, therefore I am. Now I have a le lecture where I turn that round where I actually say, I think, therefore he is. Because then I'm subject to God. But here, you're not subject to God. So rationalism is very, very foundational to Jesuitical thinking. And the present Pope is a Jesuit. Don't forget that. Descartes' moral philosophy is the following. He, being a convinced rationalist, clearly states that reason suffices us in the search for the good we should seek. And for him, virtue consists in the correct reasoning that should guide our actions. Descartes shifted the authoritative guarantor of truth from God to man. So the guarantor of truth is not God. You don't find it in the scriptures. It's man. You see, I can't see God. So rationally, if I can't see God, surely I cannot base anything in terms of how I should live or what should I should do rationally on something that I cannot see. So my morality must be based within myself. I will determine what is right and what is wrong and how to live or how not to live. And also, if scripture is supposed to be divinely um, given, then you have a problem. Because if you cannot see God, then how can you determine that scripture is from God? Therefore, I cannot use scripture as the basis for my morality. I must use my reason. Now Martin Heidegger sums it up as follows. He says, for Descartes, a particular subjectum lies at the foundation of its own fixed quality and changing circumstances. The superiority of a subjectum arises out of the claim of man to a self-supported, unshakable, foundational truth in the sense of certainty. Why and how does this claim acquire its decisive authority? The claim originates in that emancipation of man in which he frees himself from the obligation to Christian revelational truth. So you don't need the Bible. And the church doctrine to a legislating for himself that takes its stand upon itself. So if we look up the dictionary definition of rationalism, then it says the principle or habit of accepting reason as the supreme authority in matters of opinion, belief, and conduct. And in terms of theology, the doctrine that human reason, unaided by divine revelation, is an adequate or the sole guide to the attainable religious truth. This is Jesuit thinking, and it's very important that every Protestant on the planet and everybody else who's seriously seeking for God should realize 
that the philosophies out there are based on man and not on God. So how do we deal with this? Now that is why Pope Nicholas already said the Pope's will stands for reason. He can dispense above the law and of wrong make right by correcting and changing laws because rationalism dictates that everything must be based on his reason. Now we've already seen that the Pope says because he has the elevated position of observation and the doctrine of infallibility coupled to that makes him the ultimate source of reason. So based on the Pope's reason, they will decide what is right and what is wrong. That means the scripture doesn't dictate morality. They do. This is a serious issue. John 15 verse 5, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same beareth forth, brings forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. This is the opposite of that teaching. And Luther said, human reason is blind, deaf, senseless, godless, sacrilegious, and all is dealing with God's words and works. So we have two systems that clash. Either you're a Protestant and you base your teachings on the Bible, or you are with the rationalists and you base their teaching, your teaching on one man's human reason. This is a serious issue. How far will they go? The final genesis, spiritual formation. This is Jesuit teaching, Tylat de Chardin. This is a modern webpage, Fordham University. Tells us that the future of humanity, as propounded by Teilhard, is part and parcel of modern thinking. Teilhard, of course, was the great thinker, the rationalist for the United Nations. And when we look at his philosophy, he states, the outcome of the world, the gates of the future, the entry into the superhuman, will open only to the advance of all together in a direction in which all together can join and find completion in spiritual renovation of the earth. So all the religions come together. We've already seen that they've signed that. Once complete unity has been achieved, Christ, but it's not the biblical Christ, who will be the omega point, will appear. Man will then be more than man, will be what Tylard called ultra-human. The cosmos will be transformed and the glory of all will be established. So here is humanity glorified on this planet called Earth. And he wrote, the general convergence of religions upon a universal Christ that satisfies them all. So it cannot be the one that says there's no salvation outside this specific one that died for you on the cross. All that seems to me the only possible conversion of the world and the only form in which a religion of the future can be conceived. So this is Jesuit thinking. So that is why they signed the Unity of Religious Agreement in 2014, just a few months ago, and they're all coming together. But what is the basis? This is my question. Is it Bible or is it serpent? Tyler dreamed of humanity merging into God and each realizing his own godhood at the Omega point. This belief has inspired many of today's New Age leaders. And he's one of the most frequently quoted New Age occultists. But he was a Jesuit. Now, let's get real. Let's go to the Catechism 
of the Roman Catholic Church, and again I want to point out it comes directly from the Vatican webpage, so this is not conjecture. Catechism of the Catholic Church, 2nd edition, Article 460. The Word became flesh to make us partakers of the divine nature. For this is why the Word became man, and the Son of God became the Son of Man, so that man, by entering into the communion with the Word, and thus receiving divine sonship, might become a Son of God. For the Son of God became man, so that we might become God. Excuse me. Directly from their webpage. The only begotten Son of God, wanting to make us sharers in His divinity, assumed our nature so that He made man might make men gods. What was the second lie that the serpent told Eve? Ye shall be as gods. So we've seen that Rome says about the first lie, we know what the Bible teaches, but we tell you you're immortal. We know that the Bible teaches that you are mortal, that you have conditional immortality in Christ, but we tell you you're gods. Serpent language. Serpent doctrine. Now what about knowing good and evil? Who will now determine for me what is right and what is wrong? The rationalist says, I don't need God, and I don't need His Word. I cannot see Him, therefore I will decide and let's choose one man who can decide it for me because he is infallible by doctrine and he has an elevated position. So now must I follow one man who's teaching a doctrine of the serpent and ignore the doctrine of the Bible? I must make sure Protestants, Protestants, Lutherans, Baptists, Methodists, please take note. This is a serious issue. Whose authority are you accepting when you are in the ecumenical movement and join up with Rome? What are you doing? Are you accepting the authority of God or are you accepting the authority of the serpent? This is the question. This is uh, Richard M. Gula, Jesuit, professor. Now remember, Malachi Martin stated that when a Jesuit writes a book, it is the authority of the Jesuit general that is espoused in that book. Knowing good and evil, the magisterium, which is the hierarchical structure of the church, has appealed to natural laws, the basis for its teaching pertaining to a just society, sexual behavior, medical practice, human life, religious freedom, and the relationship between morality and civil law. In any case, the development of natural law tradition among Christian thinkers is due not so much to the scriptures as to the influence of Greek philosophy and Roman law. There you have it. It's based on Greek philosophy. It's not based on the scripture. Out of their own mouth. Now, how do we decide what is right and wrong in this world if I am not going to listen to the scriptures? In matters of faith and morals, the bishops speak in the name of Christ and the faithful accept their teaching and adhere to it with religious assent of soul. So if the magisterium makes a decision, you say yes. This religious submission of will and of mind must be shown in a special way 
to the authentic teaching authority of the Roman pontiff, even when he is not speaking ex cathedra. And there's the quote. He's quoting Lumen Gentium, which happens to be from the Second Vatican Council. So they're telling me, no matter what the Pope says, even if he's not speaking at cathedra, I better believe it and do it. He is the authority. In my treatment of formation of conscience, I pointed out that character is formed in community by committing our freedom to a particular object of loyalty and then by internalizing the images, rituals, traditions, etc., which the community has fashioned in order to carry the meaning attached to that object of loyalty. Brilliant. So now I have relic worship and anything that goes along with it because he says that this is fine even though the commandments of God say it's not fine. If he says this, I walk like a brainless individual wheresoever he leadeth. This is a serious issue. Then he asks the question, what does religious assent or submission of will and mind mean in moral matters? This is the hub. This is the hub. Religious assent or submission means that such effort and appropriations are motivated by the conviction that Jesus has commissioned the church to teach and the Spirit guides the church in truth. Here's infallibility. Francis A. Sullivan, an ecclesiologist from the Gregorian University, so he's quoting another Jesuit. The Jesuits love quoting other Jesuits. And then he says, this is his summary. As I understand it, so this is the other Jesuit from the Gregorian University, then to give the acquired obsequium religiosium. Obsequious means to be subservient to be obedient in all matters, to come before the master and say, excuse me, I'm sorry that I'm alive, but may I appear in front of your holiness? So, required obsequium religiosium, in other words, submission in religious things, to the teaching of the ordinary magisterium, that's the hierarchical structure of the church, to make an honest and sustained effort to overcome any contrary opinion I might have and to achieve a sincere assent of my mind to this teaching. If they say so, it is so. If they say it's black and I know it's white, I'm confused, it's black. I have a question. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Was it necessary? It seems like such a huge sacrifice to bring. Why didn't he just create us like this, subservient and obedient, irrespective of whether I have a different opinion or not. Why didn't he just create me brainless in terms of obedience? Would I not be a robot? And what value has love when you are a robot? What if your wife is programmed to love you, and she tells you every single day, I love you. Well, it might be fun for a year or two, but after that it gets boring because after all, it's just a microchip that's been placed inside her. So eventually you'll switch her off and say, belt up, I've had enough of that already, thank you. But what if she has freedom of choice? What if she can leave you at any time because she has freedom of choice and she says she loves you in spite of your faults and your problems and your 
idiosyncrasies. Is that valuable? Alright, so Jesus chose to create us with the freedom of choice. Otherwise he wouldn't have given Adam and Eve a choice at the Garden of Eden, is that correct? Now how far was he prepared to take this choice? Did he know that when he created us with freedom of choice that there was the possibility that we would choose against him, yes or no? Now how lightly did he take that? He was prepared to die for it, and he did. So if Jesus Christ was prepared to die to guarantee my freedom of choice so that love would be valuable for all eternity, my question is, who are they to rob me of my freedom of choice? This is Antichrist. This is against Jesus. The official text of the 1978 National Catechetical Directory Sharing the Light says, it is the task of catechesis to elicit assent to all the church teachers. They sum it up by saying only a system of tight syllogism, which leaves no room for the personal effective element. In other words, you must be brain dead would come near guaranteeing certitude about knowing and doing what God requires and enables. Now we've just seen that every single doctrine of Rome is serpent doctrine. The three great lies are the pillars on which their doctrine stands. And it's contrary to what the Bible teaches, but you have to believe it because they say so. Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was a Lutheran pastor who was uh, interned and killed by Adolf Hitler, uh, said the following. Now, his theology wasn't always right, but on this issue, he has some interesting points. Through the call of Jesus, men become individuals. Willy-nilly, they are compelled to decide, and that decision can only be made by themselves. It is no choice of their own that makes them individuals. It is Christ who makes them individuals by calling them. Every man is called separately and must follow alone. But men are frightened of solitude and they try to protect themselves by merging themselves in the society of their fellow men and their material environment. I agree with him. You stand alone. It is given for man once to die there after the judgment. You have to decide what is right or what is wrong. Now what if you make a conscious decision that for you the word is going to be the standard of morality. Will you come into a clash with the system, yes or no? You must. There's no way out. So let's see how Rome wants to deal with those who to decide by their personal choice to take their stand on the scripture. This is Radio Vatican. This is in German, but nevertheless, I can translate it for you. Cardinal Ravasi, Assisi, this is the prayer gathering which they have regularly at Rome, where all the religions of the whole world come together to pray together. He says, this is strengthening against fundamentalism. Interesting. And then it says, Amongst the great religious communities, there is, since a number of years, an exchange of ideas and dialogue. But the great danger exists in the fundamentalistic 
movements. That is why this interreligious dialogue is so colorful. There are bright sides and there are dark sides. And this interaction with the religious communities is to eradicate the light, the dark side. Now this is interesting. Okay. What do they say? A sissy is an excellent opportunity to highlight the light side of the interreligious dialogue and to strengthen it and to highlight the dark sides and to fight against them. Or perhaps to remove them entirely. This is the only sense in which interreligious dialogue makes any sense. So here's a conflict. They said there's a war. There's a conflict. So here are the religious leaders at a Assisi meeting, all the religions coming together, and they're going to pray about this issue. Now at the last one, and that's reported over here in 2011, the Pope invited atheists to attend. It was rather awkward, because at the prayer gathering, they couldn't pray because atheists don't believe in God, so they decided to have a quiet moment of meditation. I don't know what the atheists thought, that's not relevant to the subject, but nevertheless, they were into metaphysics and stuff like this, and one of them was a Bulgarian philosopher and feminist, and these people were you know, willing to, to speak at this Assisi meeting, and the Pope actually said, and shocked, that many of these agnostics were closer to the kingdom of God than some people within the church. And the theme of the day is pilgrims of truth, pilgrims of peace. And the Pope had said it should highlight believers' common responsibility to build a society based on truth. Thy word is truth. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. Thy commandments are truth. And not one of those three is on the curriculum here. So what kind of truth are we talking about? A rationalist truth that has been conjured up in the mind of rationalists believing and teaching the three lies of the serpent. This is fascinating. So to me it seems as if the religions and atheists are all welcome under one roof, but fundamentalists, they must go. The dark side. Here's the definition of fundamentalism. It's a form of Protestant Christianity which upholds belief in the strict and literal interpretation of the Bible. So the strict maintenance of the ancient or fundamental doctrines of any religion or ideology. That's the Reader's Digest word power definition. Here's a modern definition from dictionary.com. Fundamentalism, a movement in American Protestantism that arose in the early part of the 20th century in reaction to modernism and that stresses the infallibility of the Bible not only in matters of faith and morals, but also in the literal historical record, holding as essential such Christian beliefs as the doctrine of the creation of the world, the virgin birth, physical resurrection, atonement, sacrificial death of Christ, and the second coming. I stand accused. I believe all of those. So I'm a fundamentalist. But the Pope has publicly said that creation cannot possibly be as it was in the Bible. Surely it came about by evolution. And the great theologians are saying 
that uh, Desmond Tutu, for example, said, surely there was no resurrection of Jesus Christ. And some of the theologians went so far as to say his body was probably eaten by dogs. So there's no virgin birth. These are all irrational thoughts and cannot be part of this modern religion. And the atonement must go. I mean, Islam denies the, the atonement directly. Fascinating. Die Welt. Umstrittene Predigt. Meinungsfreiheit oder Hetze? What is this? This pastor in January of 2015, Olaf Latzel, decided he'd had enough. A Lutheran pastor belonging to the Bremen uh, district and he taught there is only one way to be saved and that is through Jesus Christ and then he said Buddha is a fat little man he can't save you and then he said all Muslims are sinners which was perhaps a little bit rough but the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God so by definition he could just be right if that is so because Christians are also sinners. And then he said, Catholic relics are rubbish. And he got into huge trouble. Huge trouble. And his entire colleague base came marching with banners saying, we are all colorful. We have all the rainbow colors. We want to be one with all the religions and this fundamental teaching must stop. It's hate speech and we will root it out of the churches. Interesting, interesting. Pope says Christian unity means rejecting proselytism and competition. You may not say, excuse me, there are fundamental differences, I'm using that word with tongue-in-cheek, between what the Bible teaches and what you are teaching. And I would want to warn people that if you want to base your faith on the Bible, come out of her, my people. Now, what's this new kingdom that they're building? Because this kingdom is not built on Scripture. It's built on another philosophy, as we have seen. Amillennianism. There's no specific period of a thousand-year reign. The period applies to the whole of church history. This is the view held by Roman Catholicism and some conservative Protestant groups. So it's very important that we understand this. In Catholic thinking, there's no millennium. When the Roman Catholic Church has succeeded in uniting humanity under its rule, and it is the standard of morality in the world, then the kingdom has arrived for them. But since that was not the Protestant view, how do you change the Protestant view to move away from the biblical view to something in between? So you create other views. And the interesting thing is that these other views come out of the pens of Jesuits. So they must be, like Cardinal Bellamine, for example, the great Jesuit theologian who brings in dispensationalism and all kinds of theologies, like post-millennianism. This view claims that the kingdom is a present reality because Christ reigns in his church. All nations will be converted to Christ prior to the coming of Christ. 
The period prior to his coming will become peaceful and the gospel will be spread to all nations. And the Lutheran Augsburg Confession and the Puritan Westminster Confession subscribe to this view because they didn't understand it yet. They were still steeped in Catholic theology there in the beginning. They had mistakes, but it's not based on the Bible. It's based on Catholic theology that has been infused by Jesuit thinking. Premillennialism, dispensational premillennialism, a secret rapture prior to the tribulation. The millennium kingdom reaches its fulfillment in the Jewish nation. This again is a Jesuit theology, which is believed by virtually the entire evangelical world. It's unbelievable. The Jewish nation, the temple, the sacrificial system are restored in Palestine. I thought Jesus said, it's desolate. The house is desolate and that according to the prophecies of Daniel the time when the Jews would be the harborers of the gospel message would end and it would go to the Gentiles does Christ have two brides all the warnings given to the church regarding the time of trouble prior to the coming of Christ now become applicable to the Jews only so even when you pray thy kingdom come why are you praying it it only applies to the Jews Another Jesuit doctrine which is being taught in the world. Historic premillennialism, the redeemed of all ages on the earth during the millennium. But the Bible says all the cities were destroyed. We'll have to go into that and look at it in greater detail. So how do they set up the kingdom with this multitudinous philosophy that's out there in the world? They don't mind what you believe. They don't care. As long as you follow and obey and give up your own rational mind. Seven Mountains Initiative. In 1975, Bill Bright, founder of Campus Crusade, Lauren Cunningham, founder of Youth with a Mission, and Francis Schaeffer came together and they said they must conquer the seven spheres or mountains of society. So these are business, government, media, arts, entertainment, education, the family, and religion. That covers about every base of humanity. There's nothing left there that's excluded. So when the church rules the business world, when the church rules government, when the church rules media, arts and entertainment, when the church rules education, family and religion, then their kingdom is here. Now they will conceive this, the evangelicals, as the millennium of peace which the Bible knows nothing about, by the way. And the Catholics will conceive it as amillennianism. Now the church will rule forever. So it doesn't matter that they have different concepts. And so this is their pyramid. Basis is the family. And it's interesting that the papacy is so concerned with the family and the structure of the family and the Sunday which is associated with the family. This is the National Review Online on Building the Tower of Babel. According to the Vatican, in today's world we can only save ourselves together. In fact, the Holy See even suggests the creation of a global political authority able to govern problems and challenges which have now gained global dimensions through consensus and subsidiarity. According to the Vatican, 
Just as in the anarchist, fight between rival clans and kingdoms have been overcome in the past with the building of national states, today humanity must commit to the transition from archaic struggles between national entities to a new model of more integrated and stratified international society that is respectful of the identities of all people within the manifold wealth of one single humanity. So every single pope that has come along has asked for a new world order. Everyone. Pope John Paul asked for a new world order. Benedict asked for a new world order. And Francis will do exactly the same. Vatican Radio, Vatican asks for a financial overseeing authoritative body. We must get control of these issues. It's interesting that they explain why you need an overseeing body that controls the financial and the government, of course, and all of these other issues. And then they say something very interesting in German here at the bottom. It says the spirit of the building of the Tower of Babel was yesterday. Now we have the spirit of Pentecost, which says one human family. That's very interesting. What happened at the Tower of Babel? God separated the nations. That was yesterday. What do we have now, they say? We're going to join them all together. Isn't that the opposite of what God did? So who's the architect behind it? Will it be God? Or will it be the other architect? All right. We have to be rationalists when it comes to this sometimes. So when the European community was founded, this was the poster that they put up. And uh, it's fascinating that they used the Tower of Babel but they had a crane on it showing that it was under construction. So this is straight defiance of what God did at the Tower of Babel because he destroyed it. They're building it. This is their message. And it's interesting that when you look at it, there are mountain ranges in the back and fields and cultivated lands, but they are in the form of pyramids on the one side. In other words, this is paganism that is incorporated and the people's faces are squared off. This is rather arrogant. That means they are robotic. They have no mind of their own. They have been indoctrinated to think like their masters. Okay. Interesting. This is Mail Online, 8 July 2015, the Pope's New World Order. Francis calls for the goods of the earth to be shared by everyone. So he made the latest appeal on his South American tour recently, and he said, quoting again what all the previous popes had said, the goods of the earth are meant for everyone, and however much someone may parade his property, it has a social mortgage. In other words, nothing belongs to you. Because Rome has the right to alienate everything. They're the sole owners of everything. Now, organizations that are used to power this new drive to build up this new kingdom, one of them is uh, Morningstar University, 
with its champion there on the left. Let's see what they have decided to do. And here you can see Rick Joyner, and he said, The true soldiers of the cross are mobilizing. The church is about to be clothed with a beauty that is beyond this world. Now, it's interesting that these people all parade amongst evangelicals, but they belong to the order of Malta. So who are they subject to? This is Rome that they're subject to. They have a Roman ideology. And he says quite plainly, the war is a battle for the hearts and the minds of the people. This is a battle for the mind. Who are you going to be subject to? It is a spiritual war and the, and the weapons are spiritual, not carnal. It was not just Wall Street that tore down the Iron Curtain, but it was the Word of God that brought it down. And there he is with the American generals. And if you go and check out the American generals, they're either Jesuit trained or Knights of Malta. The church rules the mightiest, mightiest military machine on this planet. And then he writes about the coming kingdom. Now, we've already seen that you must submit your mind to one entity who is infallible. At first, it may seem like totalitarianism, as the Lord will destroy the Antichrist spirit now dominating the world. Which Christ? Christ of heaven or the, the usurper Christ sitting on the throne pretending that he is God? Which one will be destroyed? With the sword of his mouth and will shatter many nations like pottery instead of taking away liberties and becoming more domineering, the kingdom will be moved from a point of necessary control. In actual fact, he says in another place, you have to lead them like little children. Hello, is he daddy and we're all pumpkins? while people are learning truth, integrity, and honor. I prefer to learn my truth, integrity, and honor from the Bible. And they're waiting for a kingdom that will be set up here on this earth. But John 18, 36 says, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from hence. So, they claim the kingdom will start out authoritative in many ways. A dictatorial system. Does this sound like the kingdom of God to you? Sounds like something I would want to avoid. Those who are called to rule and reign with him must start thinking much bigger. How big do you want to think? And then he had a vision. I was then shown the most beautiful dry bridal, bridal dress I've ever seen. The church is about to be clothed with the beauty that is beyond this world. She's going to make herself ready and become the glorious bride our Lord deserves. Which church is he talking about if he's wearing Knight of Malta paraphernalia? And so in 2007, they had the call to Nashville. And this is to enthuse people to start integrating religion with politics. And it's done in a very clever way. You know, we have to get ourselves back into harmony. We have to marry if we're not married couples, etc., etc. And they come together and again they choose their, their dates according to their, their calendar and their liturgies, just as all occult thinkers do. So they chose the unique date of July 7. 2007, so that you have 777. 
marriage is about a true covenant. You see how the family is lifted up? We have to get family values back. And then exactly 40 years after the rebellion of the 1967 hippie movement, starting the day after Pentecost on the May 28, 2007, call for a fast of 77, prayer walk 777, crossed over 140, 40 being the number of testing. This is occult thinking. This has nothing to do with the Bible. You don't have to wait, if you're in trouble, for a particular day in the liturgy to arrive to have contact with God. Forget it. If you want to speak to God, you speak to Him anytime, anywhere, any place. The entire day from dawn until dusk was spent worshipping, praying, and then, of course, music. God is allowing His bride to enter the promise of rest. And then they bring in Israel and all of these issues to fit into this dispensationalist theology which you cannot find anywhere in the Bible. But having prepared the minds in this way, 11, 11, 11, they get them together again, the dates are right, they have nice Kabbalistic meaning, and we will now introduce politics. The response, call to prayer for a nation in crisis. Look at those masses of people. The then-time governor, Rick Perry, who was a presidential candidate, he uh, initiated the response. So now, government and the religious movements were working together. Now, isn't it interesting that the Bible says that an image will be made to the beast, and we discussed this in some detail in the previous lectures, and we will see that church and state must come together. And let's see where we are with this next presidential election and how the evangelicals wish to achieve this. This is now July 2015. Southern Baptist leader Russell Moore to interview Jeb Bush. What has become clear in the last several years is that evangelicals are tired of sloganeering and are looking for a concrete strategy. Moore said in a statement, they can no longer consider themselves part of some silent majority where our First Amendment freedoms are assumed and guaranteed. Instead, evangelicals want to know which candidates offer a clear, coherent vision of religious liberty and have a plan to defend it when the very idea is contested in American politics. Evangelicals are looking for leaders who not only understand their convictions about human dignity and human stability, but have plans to address them. You see church and state moving together? Now if we can find a statement from them where they're actually asking for this, that would be quite thunderous, because that would be a fulfillment of prophecy. So, I would refer you to the date again, July 23rd, 2015, Russell Moore, President of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist, will interview Jeb Bush, presidential candidate, before a sold-out crowd of 13,000 evangelical pastors and leaders in Nashville. And what is their agenda? What do they want with this? Look at the date, the date August 5, 2015. Nashville. Sealed with a prayer, Southern Baptists urge to engage with politics, but be civil. There's no separation, separating religion and politics. Isn't that fascinating? 
This is a totally new tune. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. Speaker after speaker at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, the Gospels and Politics Conference, reiterated the point that it is a Christian duty to ensure biblical principles are being upheld by elected officials. World is moving towards a new system. So how do these elites wish to bring this about? Well, they tell us in their symbology when they present their great events. And they think people will not see what the meaning behind their symbols actually is. At the last Olympics in 2012, they were very blatant about it. They constructed the stadium in the form of the all-seeing eye and the lighting in the form of the pyramid of the elite. And this is an artist's impression. And their slogan was 2012 London Olympics. But there's a dot in it, and if you rearrange it somewhat, then it could spell Zion, because there's a dot in it, which is probably what it is, because they even alluded to that in the previous Olympics. Now, when you think about Zion, most people think about Judaism controlling the world, but not to these insider Catholic initiates, initiatives, because these people, these initiates, know that Zionism is just an acronym for the world government. It's nothing to do with Judaism. That's a false flag. So their mascots were Wenlock and Mandeville. Why choose these two towns? They give their reasons, but the reason they choose them because of the letters that are in them, because this is Kabbalistic thinking. And they have the all-seeing eye, and they have the pyramid in the mascot. And if you take the letters of Wenlock and Mandible, then you get the Masonic W and M, and of course the symbol of Zionism, which has nothing to do with Jewish leadership, but to do with Roman Catholic leadership of the entire world. This is Jesuit secret society language. Now, how far did they go? At the opening ceremony, they had introduced in the one corner Glastonbury Tor, which is a famous hill and one of the old, oldest sacred sites for mystical stories and legends of King Arthur and his 12 knights. Now, the 12 around one issue is a Rosicrucian affair because it's based on Christ who had 12 disciples around one. Satan wants to be like the Most High. Here's the real Glastonbury Tor, where witches and pagans and occult rituals and festivals are held. Then they showed the Industrial Revolution, and there you can see the pyramids in the back, in the lighting, this is real. And then, fascinating, they brought down the ultimate white pyramid. And everybody lay down at the pyramid, and eventually bowed down and knelt at the pyramid. And then on a giant screen, John Lennon appeared, who was, of course, according to the literature, also controlled by the Jesuits, and he himself admitted that he was a follower of Satan. And he sings the words of the song, Imagine. And uh, 
Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. This is rationalism. Dressed in the garb of religion, based on the reasoning capacity of an infallible man. Imagine all the peoples living life in peace. You may say, I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Are we at that point in history? Imagine no possessions. Isn't it everything under a social mortgage, according to the Pope? I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. This is the new world as they imagine it. And then on their pyramid, they place the little children in prayer position, kneeling down, all dressed in white. In other words, clothed with their own righteousness. And behind them, there is this flaming sphere. And uh, interestingly enough, they always plan their events according to the astrological and astronomical calendars. And on the uh, great edifice of London, they placed the Olympic rings, five rings representing, of course, the nations united, but they will only be united when the capstone comes down of the pyramid, which is the all-seeing eye of Lucifer. Now, if the pyramid is the right way up, then it's masculine. If it is upside down, then it's feminine. And it doesn't matter whether it's the one or the other, because yin-yang is both. But if it's up the right, right way up, then it will be the sun as the masculine emblem. If it's the other way around, then it will be the moon as the feminine side. And so the moon rose, and it of course was a full moon, and completed the picture, which means that Isis, or Lucifer, will rule the nations united. Interesting. Then they brought out the octopus. The octopus is an occult symbol, and with his eight hands, he brings everything together. There's also numerology in there. Eight is also a number associated with Christ and with Antichrist, but we won't go into that. And then all of a sudden the phoenix rises above the flames representing the nations. But there's more to it. The nations actually go up in flames because he rises out of the ashes out of, of the old order to set up his order. Interesting. And then what happened? Well, then the dancer, Darcy Bussell, makes an eye-catching entrance with ballerinas and she comes in on the phoenix, riding into the stadium with royal baller, ballet ballerinas and the spirit of the flame composed by David Arnold is sung. And then a group dressed in black, they're called Take That, look at the phoenix over there and they sing rule the world. That's getting pretty blatant. They're setting up their kingdom. Now if you go to the United Nations, the mural against their central wall, is the phoenix rising out of the destroyed nations. So this is the gigantic mural situated in the UN Security Council chamber in New York. Features a phoenix rising from a world in ashes. Why is the world in such a turmoil? 
Why have we such a problem in the world? And just to put it beyond a shadow of doubt, God's plan is to unite all humanity, says the Pope. So this is setting up their kingdom. And their agenda is virtually complete. They've advertised it. They've said that they would do. This is Ban Ki-moon visiting the Pope. We'll just show the short video clip. In the beginning, there's not much said because they don't allow sound broadcasting. You can just vaguely hear. It's what he says afterwards, which will be interesting. Interesting. So when he was inaugurated, 1,000 days to the Millennium End Goals. Now here, End Poverty 2015, this is the UN webpage. They want to, by 2015, I, I sort of feel that's pretty now, eradicate extreme poverty and hunger. That's quite a goal and quite a mission. Achieve universal primary education, promote gender equality, they're pretty far along the line, reduce child mortality, combat HIV, ensure environmental sustainability, and develop global partnerships for development. In other words, they're planning to get everything into shape for what they wish to do. Now there's two ways in which you can eradicate poverty in a short while. The one is to try and take everything from the rich and give it to the poor and the rich will have nothing and the poor will have soup for three days and then everybody will be equally poor. The other way is to eradicate the poor or the ignorant. Now this seems rather radical but if you do a little search you will find that the elitists, I'm talking now about the kings and the princes of this world, be they of England or other places, and the advisors to the presidents of the United States, and the great money mongols, all have made amazing statements about how wonderful it would be if we could eradicate 90 to 95 percent of humanity to sort out this world's problems. And the Georgia Guidestones are fascinating when it comes to this theology. Now here are Guidestones that were put up by an elitist group and very secretive. Nobody should really know what it's all about. And it says there, the Georgia Guidestones sent a cluster erected 22 March 1980. And it's written in Babylonian cuneiform, classical Greek, uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics, etc. 
Let these be guidestones to an age of reason. Excuse me, does that ring a bell after this lecture? Oh, the other language is Sanskrit. Let these be guidestones to an age of reason. Could you give us a little bit more detail? Well, they tell us who the sponsors and the people are who erected this. Now, this is a Masonic structure built according to astronomical precisions with holes where the sun comes through, particular equinoxes, etc., etc. The author is a pseudonym, one R.C. Christian. And the sponsors, a small group of Americans who seek the age of reason. Now, it's interesting that Carol Quigney said that the world is ruled by a small group of people who are immensely powerful, of whom he is a member. That was the Jesuits. And we see that the Jesuits are interested in bringing about a reason-based environment and that the Pope's will stands for reason. Then there's a time capsule underneath. Now if we look at this interesting pseudonym, what could R.C. Christian possibly stand for? How about Roman Catholic Christianity will rule the world? So here are the guidestones, and it's interesting that the very first suggestion is to maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. So there must be some plan to eradicate some 7 billion people off the face of this earth. Now, I'm not a fear monger. The Bible tells me that there will be a time of trouble such as never was since the beginning of time, just before Christ comes. So yes, there will be turmoil. And yes, there will be Disasters, But the Bible also says that a thousand will fall by your side, ten thousand by your right hand, and it will not come near you. The Bible also says that your bread and water will be sure. So here it is a question of faith. Do you believe the Bible, or do you believe these people? Revelation 19.11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven were, were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he shall smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rotten iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of all God, Almighty God. This is the promise of the return of Jesus Christ. Daniel put it this way. While you were watching, he said to Nebuchadnezzar, a rock, Christ is the rock, was cut out, not by human hands, no human intervention. He struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. So, when this kingdom of theirs is set up, when they believe they have everything under control, when Satan is trying to eliminate the last vestiges of these dark fundamentalists who put their faith in the word of God, the scripture says 
Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the image became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Now this is a fascinating prophecy. Because it says here that when the stone strikes, the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were crushed together and they were destroyed. Now if the metals here stand for the kingdoms, then obviously the gold was Babylon and the silver was Medo-Persia and the bronze was Greece and the iron and the clay were churchcraft and statecraft of Roman Catholicism ruling the world. Do you notice the reverse order from the book of Daniel? So where does the statue strike? On the iron and the clay. That means it strikes on the feet, it strikes on the ten toes, the ten horns of the first beast of Revelation chapter 13. But the first beast of Revelation chapter 13 is the only entity in the Bible that has all the elements of Babylon, the lion's head, Medo-Persia, the feet of the bear, Greece, the Greek philosophy, the bulk of the body as we saw tonight, and the ruling structure, the ten horns by which it rules. So only in the Roman Catholic system, the first beast of Revelation chapter 13, do you have all these components present today. There's no other structure that qualifies. So the kingdom that will be destroyed is the kingdom that Rome will set up under the papacy. The choice we have is either we give up our God-given capacity to make our own choice, or we accept that Christ died for my freedom of choice, and I would like to honor him by keeping his commandments and obeying his moral directives. That's the choice we have. And every person has to make that choice. May God bless you as you choose between the three lies of the serpent and the truth of Scripture. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a tremendous issue lies before us. They want to destroy humanity. You have said if you would not return, not one man would survive. But you have promised to return and to intervene and to cut short their activities. Help us to make right choices so that even if we walk through this fiery furnace, we may have the Son of God with us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.